0: Harry Pickens is a man of many talents. I met him via the world of the havening techniques, but he is a consummate jazz pianist and a profoundly gifted coach and trainer, as well as just an all round wonderful human being. Join us as we talk about music, coaching, and much more on today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams so sit back and relax or sit up and get excited either way you might want to pay attention this could be important all right, so we're here with the great Harry Pickens. Harry, it's so nice to see you. How are things going?
1: I am doing very well, Doug. It's a delight and honor to be in your presence today. Oh, you're so sweet.
0: Ah, I feel the same way. I don't even feel a need to talk because it's just so nice to...
1: We'll, 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 we'll just vibe right now. We'll just like vibe and let, let whoever's listening kind of feel the energy.
0: Yeah, just feel the energy because that works real well. That works real well. In yeah, right it now. actually does work pretty well. <laughs> No need
1: for to talk we just we just we just will vibrate and transmit the energy of coaching enlightenment, and you will just catch
0: it you'll just catch it, yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah so for people who don't know how wonderful and great you are, um may I just say that you are wonderful and great, and you are also. Uh, professional musician. You have played with like amazing people for many years. You're jazz pianist. Um, But you are much, much, much more than that. I I met you first in the Havening community. Um, And I just keep learning new things about you. I think there's a whole bunch of stuff that I have no clue about you, Harry Pickens. So I was wondering if you could just give us a little uh, how, how do you think of yourself?
1: I think of myself as a human being who's here to try to serve other people as an instrument of love and compassion. So that's my answer, my self definition. You know, I've studied lots of modalities, you know, NLP, and I've studied, I'm I'm a little, I'm very interested in Ericksonian hypnosis. I haven't studied it formally, but I've read lots of Milton Erickson's transcripts and so forth. Um, NLP, Havening, as you know, um, tapping EFT. Applied neuroscience, lots of those different modalities. I've also written advertising for a living. I'm a jazz pianist. I have the privilege of playing with people like Dizzy Gillespie and playing for people like the Dalai Lama. And now I primarily work mostly one-on-one, but I also do a lot of training of coaches and counselors and therapists. So a potpourri of things. And I have a few, few private clients I work with as well.
0: I will also say that you are um, one of the most generous people I know. Um, as far as you know, really giving—I mean, you're here talking to me as an example for the the listeners here. But you give away a lot of your therapeutic time, and and you know, trying to make the world a better place through the trainings that you do online for people for um, for free. I mean, a lot of the the Havening—what do you call it—the Havening smorgasbord or the Havening?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I really—but besides feeling that you get you get what you give. The way that, the way that, um, services and education work online these days, and I learned this from Brendan Burchard and I learned this from Evan Pagan and others, is that the way marketing works these days, you teach and people get a sense of who you are. And then you offer them other kinds of things that are on a different level and they work with you. So you're right. I do lots and lots of free things, but I also have courses and individual work and mentoring and everything that I do. And it all, it all balances out.
0: Very nice. So how did you get in from this, from music? Because, I mean, you could have just stayed playing with Dizzy Gillespie. And I mean, how did you come into this sort of other realm of work with people?
1: It's a really interesting thing. I used to have stage fright that was crippling. My stage fright was so debilitating that I would not sleep for a week before performing. I would throw up for four days before performing and a day or two before performing and have tachycardia rapid irregular heartbeat. And I knew if I wanted to be a professional musician, this happened when I was 19, 20 years old. If I was going to be a professional musician, I needed to figure that out. Otherwise, I wasn't going to last very long. And so when I was about 19, having this stage fight dilemma that was really critical, it plunged me in the study of how human beings work. I studied hypnosis and Barry Connick have for Potential's Unlimited cassette tapes. That was the first thing I, I did.
0: Oh, my um, God. I haven't heard that name in years. I, I know I, knew I his stuff. Yeah, 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 I first
1: learned about it. I found out Barry Connick, I've actually lived in Lexington, Kentucky, 80 miles away from where I live now. He's the oh no one. God. But I, Potential's... <clears throat> hello, greetings, and welcome. Welcome to a new beginning. I remember that language. <laughs> but those tapes were really important for me, and I studied um, what was called super learning at the time. And um, there was a little bit of neuroscience, positive psychology, a lot of mental rehearsal. I was looking for anything I could find that would help me crack the code so that I could accomplish the thing that I wanted the most, which was to be able to perform well. And so that journey into, it took me about five years to do what I can probably do with most people in five hours now because of the technology we have. It took me about five years to really turn that fear into confident performance. And that study eventually led me, pardon me, it led me to develop a workshop. At the time, it was mostly for high school kids, <clears throat> sorry, and college kids. And it was called From Stage Right to Standing Ovation. And I taught that workshop at the Jamie Abersoul Jazz Camps in the summers from about 1988 until, I, I still do it every summer. They don't do the camps anymore because of COVID. But there and in other places, I probably taught that workshop to ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people. Right. And it was basically taking what I had learned in my own research and applying it to people in performance spaces. And then that, making the long story bearable, that eventually translated to my working with people who were not musicians <clears throat> or performing artists. At a certain point, I learned about EFT in the Let's see, when did, I think Craig developed that late 80s. I learned about EFT in the 2004, 2005. And that transformed my stage fright work. And then as I continued diving more deeply into EFT, I found myself working with people who had problems that were parallel to the performance anxiety stage fright issue that I could help them with with EFT. So I developed a coaching practice that originally started with performers that expanded out of that. And that's sort of how what eventually got me into doing more and more coaching with these energy psychology, psychosensory kind of modalities more full time. So it all started with music and the fact that I was scared to death whenever I would perform in front of people.
0: It's clearly a testimony to how how well you have done with that, because... I see you now when you perform, it doesn't look like there is a smidgen, not a, not an ounce, not a, even a a, a soupçon of of concern or, or fear at all. You look like you are just like, this is where I am meant to be. I'm playing here in front of you people. Hey, quiet down back there. I'm playing now. Hey, shh. Don't. <laughs> You're just like beaming when you play. You are just like this, this, channeling this energy it's you just being well, that,
1: that's because i know i know the secret Doug.
0: oh what is the secret
1: the secret of every transcendent performer and every transcendent creator in any discipline art form is they do what they do to express not impress to express not impress one of the most important lessons I learned in that stage fight dilemma, And I write, I write, I have a little book called in tune lessons from life or life and music that you can get on Amazon. If you're interested that they tell more, it's more of a musical story in my life. But when I started studying optimal performers, originally in music and eventually in more disciplines, that was one of the primary distinctions that if you look at a Pavarotti or a Miles Davis, or a name your great performer in whatever mm-hmm. genre, mm-hmm. there is an inner drive for creative self-expression that is more powerful than the outer drive for approval. And I was stuck when I was dealing with this issue in the what others think of me disease. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. I was completely possessed by that. And if somebody who played well was in the audience or whatever, I would be focusing more on, can I impress them? Mm -hmm. Not the beauty, you know, there's a a story about Van Gogh that articulates this really, really beautifully. And Van Gogh, when he was very young, maybe early 20s, I believe he lived in London in a fairly small flat. And it was a beautiful, beautiful full moon and a starry night. And he was looking at that full moon and those stars and how the moonlight uh, resonated on on this street lamp. And he was inspired to, um, so inspired by that scene. And he was in the middle of writing a letter to his brother, Theo, Theo Van Gogh. Uh, and he stopped writing and he turned the page over and drew a picture of that beautiful starry night. You know, it might have been a, a prelude to his classic starry night painting. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. He drew a picture of it. And at the bottom of the picture, he wrote these words. I had to share this with you because it is so beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That story for me is the epitome of performing at your best because you discover something. The Something could be Beethoven or Bud Powell or Thelonious Monk or Billy Joel. It doesn't matter. But you discover something and say, oh my God, this is so beautiful, Doug. Check this out. Let me share it with you. And My desire, my sincere desire to, number one, fall in love with the creative object, whatever it is, and number two, share it with you without Mm -hmm. expectation, that bypasses the stage fright circuit. Because then my attention is no longer on myself, Mm -hmm. on you. It's on, hey, check this cool thing out.
0: Right. right. I'm really good at that (laughs) for like two or three people. Four people, maybe. But when, when it starts to be an audience, you know, I, I discovered this. Because just speaking about me for a moment. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk I, about you, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I also am a piano player and also yeah, had terrible stage fright and also got into doing hypnosis because of stage fright. The first time I ever experienced hypnosis was at, a, at Columbia University. I first I had first moved to New York City in 1980. And I saw in the back pages of the uh, Village Voice this ad for this you know, this woman put in the in the, in the Village Voice from um, Columbia. She was a graduate student. She was doing a study on stage fright, and she wanted to see which different ways of treating it would work best. So she was doing this controlled study, and so she needed piano players to come up and volunteer for this thing. And she was doing uh, one group was doing hypnosis, one group was doing specialized ways of of um, studying the music. So you got it really inside and out and, you know, just knew it cold um, much better than ever before. And then the third group is the control group. So I started off, we went up and we all all played and now it's a group of pianists playing another front of other pianists. So it's like, Oh God, I have to impress them. You know, that's totally in the forefront. What are they going to think about me? Totally in the forefront. That was all I could think about. And I was nervous as could be. And then um, we went through this thing. And the control group people, they just went away for six weeks and came back and did it again. So probably there was not much difference, I'm guessing. I wasn't, thank goodness, in the control group. Um, I was in the group that did not hypnosis, but did the, the learning how to play the pieces inside and out so you just knew it cold. And that, that helped a lot. Yeah. Knowing for sure that I knew it and I would not miss the notes helped a great deal. But she also, because she was being very nice, said, if you were in one of the other groups, I will teach you what the other groups knew, what what we went through them. So then I went back and I learned these hypnosis techniques from her to manage the stage fright as well. So that was my first introduction to hypnosis many, many years ago. But what's interesting to me is that you went forward and started teaching it. And I've always thought that the best way to learn something is to teach it.
1: What's taught is twice learned, that's for sure.
0: And that's great, and because you know, I still get it from time to time. Like I said, if I'm playing for four or five people, no problem. But if soon as soon as there's like an audience, you know, like when we did that that Havening in the Kia Jazz thing, as soon as we turned those cameras on, I was like, oh, oh. You know, well, you know like,
1: that that's really interesting, Doug, because my experience now is literally no different if I'm playing for one person or twenty thousand people. Oh, no uh, really? Because, <clears throat> and I I don't know if this would would serve you, but there's a there's a kind of intuitive or energetic cocooning that occurs for me where I have actually at times literally forgotten that I was playing in public and there was an audience because I was so completely lost in the present moment experience of the music. And for me, there is a place that I can go. And it goes back to the Van Gogh, this is so beautiful, where where I am so... Focused intent and present to that sound in that moment and to the intimacy of me and the piano. That the other people, and I also have my eyes closed often, the other people don't even exist mm. because I, I do feel that I mean, they exist in an abstract way, they exist as those that I am serving or that the music is flowing through me to touch. Mm. But there is a very, for, for me, and I'm, I mean, I'm I'm more of an introvert anyhow, there's much, there's more of this cocoon, it's an energetic cocoon that's me and the piano and the music, and everybody else is sort of eavesdropping on our conversation. So I don't, I don't feel self conscious because you're just hearing what I'm saying to my sweetheart, you know, <laughs> in a way. Uh, a-
0: gosh, Harry Pickens. Um, one thing people might not know about you if they don't know about you is that you are, uh, what, six foot nine?
1: I am 81 inches, six foot nine tall. I've been this tall since I was 14 and I don't play basketball at all. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I, I would not have asked you that question. But um, boy, that must be rough being an introvert at six foot nine because hmm. you sort of stand out in pretty much any crowd, I would think.
1: Well, you, you know, Doug, I think I think all of us, come into, not all of us, but many of us who are in this profession of helping others come to our work as a result of things we've overcome ourselves. Mm. I was a tall kid. I grew up in the deep South in South Georgia as somebody of African-American ancestry during the 60s and 70s. And I all I had to do was to walk into any room and I would get attention. And I was a really shy kid that didn't want attention at all. And so I had to learn how to navigate the inevitability of attention when it was placed on me. And one way I I did, did that was transmuting it by playing the piano because I could disappear. Mm. And paradoxically, I could disappear, and there was just the music then.
0: So, except for the stage fright.
1: Except, well, well when once, once I, well, yeah, but you know, that that's a really interesting thing, because the stage fright was much more about a performance context. If I was just like playing not on a stage. Uh-huh. It wasn't so much an issue. It was more about that public performance. Gotcha. But I, I, I know for me that music. I mean, for example, when I went to Davidson College, the first time there was a social gathering because I, I, I literally was what might be characterized as pathologically shy. There was something going on, and there were all it was. There was the like first weekend of school and brand new college and everything, and I was in this this cocktail party kind of thing and feeling very awkward until I saw a piano over in the corner. <laughs> so I started playing the piano and that allowed me to say hello to people.
0: Oh, that's great. You know, it's yeah. funny you should say that because as a, as a musician, um, I also had that stage fright thing. And, and in a concert situation, I I still get it a little bit. And I've obviously done a lot of work for it uh, on it over the years but I also don't perform very often so it's hard to measure um but when I would play parties I loved playing parties because people weren't really listening they were just it was it was background you know they were having conversations they were drinking you know so I could just and I played great I played great at parties man that was good um anyway let's talk some more about other things uh, i could talk to you about this all day but that's probably not what people are tuning in for although i, I mean, think the
1: interesting thing though around that as we make the bridge is everything i ever learned about coaching i learned on the bandstand in the practice room and the concert hall really all, all of the principles that are intrinsic to effective, exceptional coaching or being a practitioner or whatever are absolutely connected to my embodied experience of being an improvising musician.
0: Well, let's talk about that then. So like what, Harry Pickens? Like, like what would you say is an essential coaching skills? Because that is the name of this podcast. The essential, what would you say is an essential coaching skill that you learned on the bandstand?
1: One of them is the relationship between practice and performance. You know, very often we have people entering a field like coaching who don't have really good chops. Mm-hmm. There is, they haven't learned their basic scales and chords and rhythms and harmonies and so forth. And so they jump into a circumstance without having the real, the fundamentals mastered well enough to be able to flow with them. So that's an example. I mean, anybody who plays a musical instrument knows you can't get better without practice. It's intrinsic to the process, right? But yet in these other areas, only recently in the last five or 10 years has the term deliberate practice been introduced into the pantheon of therapy, You know, where now you're looking at, okay, as opposed to being a therapist who's been doing what you've been doing for 30 years, but you only have one year of experience and you've been repeating yourself for 29 years. The idea of deliberate practice means that you find a specific area that you want to improve in, and then you focus on creating... Um, frameworks and ways to practice that area. So you consistently improve. So example, I mean, you do this in NLP all the time in terms of rapport or sensory acuity or whatever, but that's one thing. So I would say one of the fundamentals is learning how to practice. So you learn how to deliberately make yourself better. That's
0: one. Okay. Very cool. And I will just say, um, how would a coach do that? How would a coach who isn't a musician, how does a coach who doesn't have the reference of scales and arpeggios and stuff, how would a coach practice coaching without being in front of a, a, a client or a student?
1: So number one, identify where you are and where you want to be. Create a picture of that. And as you're looking at that, where you want to be, what's the difference between where you are now and where, where that is? So you might, you might envision, okay my number one model for a coach is Doug O'Brien or is Tony Robbins or is, you know, whoever name, name your person. And then you ask yourself, okay, so what did they do that I don't do? And as you start studying and really reflecting on them, you might, Oh, okay. Number one, something that Doug does is really, really, really powerful is how he uses his vo- voice to modulate, to connect with the client. And you say, okay, that's the thing I'm going to work on. So then number, number one, you identify number two, you analyze so, they might listen to one of your recordings or listen, you know, and figure out, okay, what are those things? And then, number three, you design a simple practice routine to work on that specific area. So, in every session you do, you might suppose one thing, and I'm just making this up, but, you know, but this is the principle. So, suppose the thing that you're needing to develop is the capacity to match and mirror your client's pace. Right? So I'm talking about 75,000 miles a minute, which is sort of my natural pace with you. <laughs> but suppose that you were one of these people who spoke this way. So my deliberate practice might be in all of my conversations this week, I'm going to notice the speed, the tempo, the pace at which my client speaks. And I'm going to match that pace at the end of the week, I'll take a look and see how how I've progressed, what I've learned, how my client responded to me when I was in report, out of report. so So that's like taking the micro skill Mm -hmm. and making it into a practice, just like if I wanted to, if if I'm working on playing Scott Joplin rags, one of the things I need to learn how to do is play the left hand chunk, 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 chunk. Mm -hmm. I might do that by itself or I might do that, you know, I might take a four measure passage and do that over and over and then add another four measures to it. So same principle, you identify what you want you find a micro skill that's part of that, and then you deliberately work at it consistently.
0: Beautiful. You know, it's 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 very interesting. I, I've been teaching for the past year online. You know, both hypnosis and NLP. Yeah, I'll be doing the same thing with sleight of Mouth shortly. Um, once a week, we do these things. So we, it's 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 exactly what you've described. We are we are practicing these small things. I have. Let me just show you. I know this is an auditory thing, so most people will not be able to see what I'm showing you now on our Zoom call. I have a fake cat here. Uh-huh. Bat- battery operated cat. What do you mean fake? <laughs> I just mean he's, he's a he's he's a man-made manufactured uh cat. But um That's
1: because you haven't heard him talk to you in the middle of the night.
0: <laughs> it's one thing. Thank goodness I have not. Um, <laughs> but it breathes. Oh, wait, what's his name? Um uh Kit Kitty. Oh, okay. All right. So he has a name. Uh, it's kitty it says so right on the little label there. Um, but he's he breathes. So when you put when you when you put the battery in and, and hit the on switch, um the, the, the chest goes up and down. So it looks like he's sleeping. He's in a little curled up fetal you know, kitty position. Yeah. And he's got a I'll show you. It's got its own little sleeping basket. <laughs> so, so do
1: do you actually own a kitty?
0: real uh, no, no, and this is this is not a stuffed cat. This is a this is a, a toy cat.
1: Oh, Doug, yeah. I, ha- I have to interrupt because you're missing half of your life. And you don't at least have access to a real cat in your life. Like my my sweetheart, her cat name is named Bonkers. It looks a little bit like that kitty. Yeah. And there is something about a cat sitting on your lap purring. Talk about oh, inducting my. you into a hypnotic state. Oh, I know. Oh,
0: you I know. We, it. We, my wife and I had a cat for, for 20 years and she she died. But we, our, our current um current apartment situation in, in Manhattan disallows oh, animals. Oh, yeah. Sure. So, yeah.
1: Sure.
0: Yeah, so this is as close as I can come for now. Um, no worries. Every, every now and again, I put the battery in and just let it sit in my lap. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but the reason, the reason, Harry, the reason I bought it is so that I could get the, the students to watch the breathing of the cat. Yes. And then I would give them an assignment to when they're doing a trance induction to only speak when the cat is exhaling.
1: Nice.
0: Yeah. Because when you do that, then it creates a, a rapport and a rhythm to the way you speak that's gonna be a perfect synchronization with the person you're you're modeling and you're watching the breathing of you, because if you speak on the exhalation, you're exhaling as you speak. Right? So I you get that. in you get in a sync with them. So we we do these kinds of exercises specifically for what it is that you're talking about. And I think that's just so so great. Thank you for, for bringing that to attention. It's also really interesting that I don't know very many people, coaches, that ever do that. I mean, I, I really don't know very many coaches that do what you're discussing. How how much do you actually do that? I mean, you, I know you've learned these things from the bandstand, but do you have you practiced that sort of stuff? Have you done that for yourself? Have you analyzed?
1: I have not so much right now, but mm-hmm. every time I've learned a modality, mm-hmm. explored it. Actually, the thing, let, me, let me reflect on it, because, I, yeah, I, I'm practicing something now um, that has to do with presence, with how I am in the presence of my clients. And it's a more subtle um, practice, but it is, it is a practice. And it has to do with this idea, this framework that I've been working with about bringing the quality of unconditional love to everything in my life, but specifically with clients. And since I'm with the clients on Zoom, as I'm attending to the client, this requires sort of a bifurcated consciousness because I'm totally present to the client, but I'm also aware of my own breath. And on the exhale... I'm imagining like breathing the essence of unconditional love into the collective space. So for example, I'm doing that now as we talk, I'm attending to you, but I'm also aware of this energy, kind of this cocoon of energy that I'm consciously bringing here. So that's something I've been practicing recently.
0: It's beautiful, man. It's great.
1: So the more precise the practice, yeah, the more ultimately integrated the performance will be.
0: Sweet, so that's one principle related to music. If I, if I may, um, just digress a little bit more, I was also reminded as you speak of this, um, that you know, the, the way you did it for a week, you know, do the Concentrate on the on the vocal inflection for a week thing and, and measure how, how well you've done. Um, I'm reminded of Benjamin Franklin. Yes, because you know I, I, I work a lot with Stephen Covey's principles, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and I realized because I read it from Stephen Covey um, that prior to fairly recent times. Um, s- working towards success was not towards uh, like how I'm going to influence people. I'm not going to be, you know, make right. friends and influence people. That wasn't the point. The point really to self-improvement was to be a better person, yep. to be a better person. And the, and the idea was that if you can improve who you are as a human, then success will just flow from that. Yes. And so Benjamin Franklin had, had this this thing that he called the, uh, the um, oh gosh, he had 13... 13
1: virtues.
0: Yeah. yeah, 13 virtues. And he would cycle through these four times a year. That's why the number 13 because it adds, you know, four times 13 is 52. So it's 52 weeks a year. He would once a once a week yeah. he'd pick a different virtue and he would practice being, you know, more as much as he could that virtue that week whether yes. it's honesty or, you know, loving or whatever it might be. I'm actually not sure what his 13 virtues are, but I think that's just such a really interesting approach you know, to, to take. I agree
1: completely because we, we, we take the idea of development and we take it for granted that in the military, in sports, in the performing arts, you have to keep practicing in order to gain proficiency. But we, tend to, we, don't, we don't tend to generalize that idea that we can practice states of being, we can practice traits of character we can practice becoming a better coach or a better, you know, whatever, um, writer, a better speaker in the same exact way that we learn how to play, play the piano or the flute or the trombone. Yeah. 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 So practice and precise practice is one of those principles.
0: What's another of the principles that you learned in the bandstand that you apply to coaching as well? I, I think one of them,
1: one of the things about being an improvising musician is that improvisation is the synthesis of right brain and left brain, rational and intuitive, you know, um, stored data and spontaneous presence, which I think is also part of any interactive discipline like coaching. Mm -hmm. Um, So what that, I have have a triangle. I I, I teach a a course once in a while called called practitioner mastery, which is for, Practitioners of you know these different kinds of that kind of techniques. And I have a triangle. And one side of the triangle is pattern proficiency. That's like learning your scales. That's like learning the basic, like NLP patterns, understanding the fast phobia cure or switch pattern or meta mm-hmm. model or whatever. Underneath the, the no, another side of the triangle is relational resonance. That's like being able to connect with your client in a way that is respectful and with rapport. The third side of the triangle is intuitive intimacy. That is being able, to, so connected with your own inner wisdom that you can inwardly listen and discern what is in the highest good in the moment in real time. And so as an improviser, I am drawing on my data, pattern proficiency. I am connected with audience or whatever, relational rapport. And I'm also tuning in in the moment to this stream of energy or flow or possibility and making those choices that are appropriate in the moment, intuitive intimacy. So the state of flow, here's the coaching piece. Accessing a state of flow is a balance between what you know and what you don't know yet. It's a balance between pulling out from your back pocket the tools you already have with being so fully in the present that you're open and available to whatever needs to emerge. So that's another characteristic, learning how to be in flow in the moment, because we're all improvisers. You and I didn't write out and plan every word we we're going to talk about today.
0: <laughs> no, we're we're not sound...
1: Improvisation is improvisation. You know, yeah. you, you've, you've studied Milton Erickson a lot. Man, mm-hmm. talk about an improviser.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: five, 10 people with the same exact problem would come to Erickson, and he would have a completely different solution for every one of them.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is, which is brilliant. So um, are you, when you say this triangle, is it a pyramid where the one is like the base, the other things build from, or is it a triangle that could go in either
1: they're all they're They're, they're like, well, a better metaphor might be three legs of a stool. Okay. But they're all equal. Interesting. If, if you don't have one of the three, you're going to be crippled. Your stool won't work. You know, you can, you, you I mean, you know, people who know their patterns go well, but have a crappy rapport. All right, you know, or people who have great rapport but don't know how to do, you know, a submodality shift or whatever, or um, people who are really intuitive but don't know their stuff. So, and then and because the people who are super, super intuitive will try to wing it, but they don't have necessarily the data to support it. I mean, just like a great musician, like mm-hmm. if you think about Oscar Peterson, oh my God, or Bud Powell, or Miles Davis, or any of the real greats.
0: Oh God, yeah,
1: they've got the spontaneity. But they've also got the chops to back it up. They certainly do. You
0: know, I certainly do. Yeah. Um, my goodness, it, 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 Bill
1: Evans studied harmony. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting though, because I've often talked about with both myself and my students um, uh, having a, a balance of of like the chops and the intuition kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And I, I use the example that um, back in in college days, there was a, a fellow piano student of me of mine that um, was was just all emotion. she was just you know really emoting through the piano but she was sloppy you know she wasn't getting the right notes or the tempos kept fluctuating too much and it was just like you couldn't recognize this as mozart i mean what what is that you're playing Um, (laughs) (laughs) and then there are other people who are like so technical and precise that it was just every every note was right you couldn't argue with that um but it was hard to listen to it painful to listen to. It was so brittle and hard um that you needed to have both you needed to have the right notes and the emotion and the 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 okay. yeah that it's the combo of those two, but you're actually adding a third piece, which is fascinating to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's really really cool
1: yeah so those are a couple of examples and mean another example um in relationship to music is I had a, I was a student a thousand years ago I taught at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville Florida and I had a student named Billy, guitar player and Billy was a nervous wreck and one day I had this inspiration to have Billy just stop I said Billy stop and just take a breath I want you to think about something you love it could be a, a tree a bird, a girl a color, doesn't matter, think about something you love I say okay good now, play one note with all the love you can imagine. And he played one note. It was pretty good. Cool. So I now played two notes. Now played. Eventually, Billy went from being a nervous wreck to being a really skilled, relaxed guitar player from mm-hmm. learning how to love every note. So that's the principle. To love every note relates to being present to whatever shows up with your client. Yeah. So this is about, because sometimes people, People get nervous or get triggered when your client says or does something that you 're not prepared for
0: right yeah. but bringing
1: bringing presence and witnessing to every note okay the piano there's discordant sounds and there 's concord sounds there's low notes and there's high notes and I think about this like in in terms of the human shadow, you know all of our all of our qualities, every one of us is a saint and a and a sinner, every one of us is beautifully beautiful and angelic and awful and demonic, you know we all have the capacity to be incredibly kind and loving and also incredibly crappy, right? And that's within us. That's part of the nature of the the human experience. And so if we can own that within ourselves and bring love, I don't mean La-Di-Dog, Valentine's, but I mean like unconditional acceptance and presence to whatever, then we'll find ourselves exponentially better with our clients because we are not afraid of whatever shows up and we can embrace whatever shows up with equanimity which then allows us to access our intuition because the moment the moment you get stressed or triggered, stress makes you stupid. <laughs> and you can't think about, you you can't respond creatively when you're stressed. So the more you can speak metaphorically loving every note, the more you can bring equanimity to all of you, all your experience, all your client's experience, then the more you'll be able to really improvise in the moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very beautiful. Yeah. And, and it's um, one of the things that Milton Erickson used to say a great deal is, to, you know, to, Trust your unconscious. Oh yes. But you know, if you don't have the skill set, you know to to oh. to channel that through, then um, you know if you don't know the scales, you just you're just going to make a mess. it. Yeah.
1: And I mean, trusting your unconscious. If, if you if you don't know what's in your unconscious, you might not want to trust it, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so in other words, people who are, you know, I mean, and this isn't disparaging, but some folks are, you know, all. Happy, happy, frou frou. You know everything's good and everything's positive. They 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 have so suppressed their own shadow. Yeah. It, then they try to do that with their clients. So they try to control their clients. They try to get their clients to quote unquote think positive or or bypass things. And that doesn't really serve because it's not integrated. You know. So the whole idea is that the more integrated you are yourself, the more you have the into the in- intuitive acuity to really serve the person in front of you. Yeah. But if you, know, if, if you have a lot, if, if, if you point a lot of um, mental fingers at people, I'm like, if, if you really condemn this politician or this religion or this belief or whatever, you may not be the most effective in serving your client.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I,
1: I, don't, I don't think we really knew. I mean, you may be, you may know more than this, but I, I don't think most of Milton Erickson's clients necessarily knew his politics, his religion, his opinions—maybe they I, did.
0: I, I would tend to doubt it, but interestingly, speaking of Milton for a moment, he was yeah. a psychiatrist. He was trained as, an, as a psychiatrist, and of course, yeah. back in those days, you know, they—you don't talk to your clients about your stuff. It's all like, oh, right. tell me more about that. How does that make you feel? And it's you right. know, the, the psychiatrist is a kind of a blank slate upon which the uh, the, third, the client can project. Right. Uh, which is all part of the therapy, which is great. Um, but Milton was different than most other psychiatrists back in those days. And, and certainly once he moved to, um, uh, maybe maybe it happened in Michigan, but certainly by the time he moved to Phoenix, um, he was doing therapy out of his house. Yes. And people would come over, and these kids would be like, "Hey, how are you?" And they, you know, so you know, family therapy was kind of like the family doing therapy on the, the person. Um, are you are you aware of the <laughs>
1: seminar that um, Erickson did in his house, like a few months before he died?
0: Yeah, it's actually available. Oh, those big purple books. Yeah, you have these. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Oh my god!
1: <laughs> and and the DVDs. My God, I love them. I love them.
0: Uh, they're great. Yeah, they're called in, <laughs> in the Room with Milton Erickson. You can go to um, what's what's the website that you get those from? It's, it's,
1: it's Jane Parsons Fine.
0: Jane Parsons Fine, yeah. But um, just, it's spelled F E I N, Jane Parsons Fine.
1: Just to be in the room. I know. To hear those stories when he talks so slowly. I can just sit there and listen all day.
0: I know, and I have. (laughs) (laughs) They're great. There's volume. Volume. I see two of them. There's three volumes now. Yes,
1: I have all three. The the other the other ones in storage. Yeah,
0: yeah, Yeah. Very good. (laughs) So, yeah. Again, um, from what I'm hearing, from what you're saying, also from being a musician, is that one of the big skills one needs to do is, particularly, I think, as a and uh what did you, how did you put it uh, 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 i'm sorry <laughs> you're, you're In the impro- an interactional profession is that what i said something like that well, maybe but no when you're saying an improv improvisational um, musician because you're you're, you're jazz musician yeah. Um, yeah. rather than playing the notes as they are prescribed by beethoven from yeah. years ago um, all musicians need to listen there's no doubt about it you need to be listening to what sounds you're making the sounds that other people you're playing with are making um but as an improvisational musician you really have to listen
1: well there's no way out of that because especially when you're working with playing with others yeah the music is emerging in the moment and you need to be absolutely aware i mean that the thing i remember you know i've worked with uh like james moody and um Milt Jackson and Johnny Griffin and some of these really, really great musicians. And something I noticed the first time I was on the bandstand with Johnny Griffin is there was a and also, you know, Freddie Hubbard or Art Farmer or Benny Goldson or so many of these really, really great, great world-class jazz artists. The thing I noticed that they have in common the most is presence and commitment, being fully present and being fully committed to every note, you know. Um, just with an incredible degree of presence and intensity and focus. And I think that's also something that's really important for us to be, who are coaching and I'm not talking about being so intense that you, you're like, like Tony Robbins, the guy, you know, but mm-hmm. I'm talking about bringing all of you to the moment. Mm-hmm. So just like we used to say, don't leave, don't leave anything left on the bandstand when you're done. It's like, don't leave any part of you behind when you're with your clients, So all of you is really there.
0: How do you do that? How does a, how does a coach do that?
1: Well, you need to practice being present. I mean, you, I don't think one can coach really successfully. I, 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 I think we, we coach the way that we live, the way that we be. And so, for example, when I go on a walk with my beloved, and we are walking in the park, one of us will often stop in the middle of that walk and comment on a squirrel or a bird. Or the other day we were sitting in the park and she saw this little tiny, this tiny, tiny little bug that was of the color of a leaf. And I would not have seen it. I would have probably squished it, but she said, look at that. And and we just watched it for a moment. If you haven't practiced the capacity for being present in other areas of your life, it will not show up in your work with a client. So do you notice, like wherever you're listening to this, if you're, what, what, do you notice what else is around you in this moment? Like I'm, I'm here and I'm noticing, I'm looking out my back window and I'm seeing a, uh, a, the, the the wind blowing in the trees. I'm seeing a flag. I saw just a moment ago a little bug on the outside of the window. I'm aware of my feet on the floor. I'm aware of being present to you, to the computer I'm aware of. So all these things that are happening that are sensory data that I am in this moment present to. So you learn to be present by practicing being present wherever you are. When you're in the shower, are you really feeling the water on your skin? You know, when you're talking to your, your, your beloved, your partner, your spouse, your children, your you know, grandkids, whatever, are you there with them? When you are listening to a beautiful piece of music, are you really there listening to it? Are you thinking about a thousand things at once? So that's just about practicing being here. You can start with your breath you can start with feeling your body. You can be involved in like Tai Chi or Qigong or some kind of dance movement practice to help you become embodied and present. But all of those different things. Nice. Be here now, like Ram Dass said so yeah. long ago. You know? So
0: long ago, indeed. Hey, um, hey, uh, <laughs>
1: I just love you, Doug. It's always good to feel. <laughs>
0: oh, feeling is so mutual. Um Tell me about havening. I know you. You've been in it a little longer than I have, I think, because I think you were already a, a, a practitioner by the time I. I well let's
1: see, I, I took my first havening course in March twenty fifteen.
0: When did you Oh well, never mind? I, I beat you. Um I, 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 I 2013 is when I first yeah yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. So it's been it'll be seven years in March.
0: Nice. And what what drew you to it? I know you were already doing EFT so well. I was
1: I I, I I was really disturbed by because at the time in twenty fifteen there was not nearly as much good research on EFT as there is now. And I was actually talking to a friend of mine, a really brilliant, brilliant coach who you might connect with. His name is John Patrick Morgan, brilliant, brilliant guy. We were talking about my, we were both talking about neuroscience and we are talking about my lament that these tools, these energy psychology tools like um, EMDR and EFT, whatever, didn't have a neurobiological framework that made sense. They had an energy framework and they had an Eastern framework, but they didn't have anything based on what we know about the brain. And John said, oh, oh, do you know about Dr. Rudin when the past is always present? I said, no, I don't. And that was a Friday. I ordered the book while I was talking to him on the phone on Amazon. I got it on Monday. And three weeks later, I was in New York taking the training.
0: <laughs> but
1: it, it, it filled this need for a neurobiological model. And I mean, since then, you know, we've got really good memory consolidation and a number of things that have supplemented um, Rudin's idea about traumatic encoding. But it was the model that was grounded in solid neuroscience, the hypothesis rather grounded in solid neuroscience that attracted me because then I started understanding more about Havening. That model does open out a window for us to understand dozens of other modalities and how they work and what happens in the brain. So that was it. That was the connection. The the, the tool is great. I mean, havening as a modality is great. But my real interest and passion then and even now is what the model tells us about how lots of other things work and how to use it skillfully in both in terms of havening-centric methods and wider applications as well.
0: Nice. Do you, do you still use EFT as well, or do you just stick to havening now? Or Oh,
1: gosh, no. I mean, if you were to work with me as a client, there's no telling what we would what we do. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it might involve doing some meditation. It might involve um, some EFT, some tapping, some havening touch, some other, some synthesis. You know, I've, I've had the privilege of studying with um Mark Robert Wallman, who has written several books on neuroscience and change, including some with Andy Andy Newberg. Who's the expert on neurotheology or the idea of spirituality in the brain? And he has a program called neurocoaching, which I've learned a lot from. I use some of his te- his techniques and tools, some straight memory consolidation, some matrix re-imprinting, some. I mean, it all depends on what the some sometimes some NLP or hypnotic kind of work depends mm-hmm. on what the person in front of me needs. Hmm. I've also explored the one of the most fascinating things I've been exploring lately is a synthesis of. Something I learned from Lindsay Kinney at EFT, where instead of so so you have somebody who has an issue, say the issue is I don't i am not good enough. And they can't identify a specific memory because maybe they had a lot of different memories related to that. Maybe they were, you know, bullied and maybe they were abused and maybe they were treated in a certain way as a kid. And so I will have them. So what I learned from Lindsay Kinney was this idea of bundling or bucketing. That is, you don't always have to find one memory. You can actually take a symbol that represents a bunch of memories, and that can. Uh, Sylvia Hartman also talks about this. So you might. Lindsay Kinney has a trauma tree. Um, she also has something called the Tower of Shame. There's other. There, uh, tapas Fleming uses. She calls it a pot where you just put all your stuff in it. I often use a bucket of stress. I have a client put draw a big U on, on a piece of paper. And I want, you, I want you to put everything in that bucket that you can think of that relates to this. So every event, every emotion, every memory, every belief, whatever. So sometimes they'll come up with a big, big bucket. And they'll have them create an image of what that bucket is. And it, sometimes it's a small bucket, sometimes it's a dumpster. And then we do some things to contain it appropriately. And then we'll clear it. We can clear it with EFT. We can clear it with havening. What I've been exploring more recently is was written by a, a technique by William, William Lammers called Logosynthesis. Do you know that technique? I do not. Oh, my God, Doug, You got to check it out. Logosynthesis uses words alone to move energy. So he has these four, four sentences. So what you do is when the person identifies the memory or the issue or the whatever, or the symbol in this case, you say four things. The first is, I'm paraphrasing, but I reclaim all of my energy that's been stuck in this and send it back to its right place. I reclaim all, I I release all not me energy, everything that's not mine from this and send it back. And I release my reactions to this from my body. And then I tune my my system to its awareness. Check out, look look it up, Logosynthesis. Because what I've discovered is I have been able to help clients, okay, I went from EFT to havening because there's a specific practice called the trauma tree, where you take a belief and you create a symbolic tree with the events and the emotions and the beliefs connected to it, and you clear it with EFT. Average trauma tree will take 30 to 40 minutes to clear completely. And once it's cleared, the person is free of those beliefs and those emotions and those that issue. I did the same thing with havening, and I could clear a trauma tree in 25 minutes instead of 45 minutes. Like, that's cool, pretty fast. So now with logosynthesis, I can clear a trauma tree in 10 or 15 minutes. Hmm. And all we do is talk. Really? So no tapping, no touching, just language and a few other, a few other subtleties. So I, hmm. use, I use the combination of soothing touch, not necessarily havening, but touch, some kind of relaxing touch with yawning, which is what Mark, Mark, I learned from Mark Wallman. I have a technique called yawn, stretch, and soothe. So you yawn, big mindful yawn, you stretch, and then you soothe with, with comforting touch. And then we do some tapping around acceptance, acknowledgement. Even though I have this big bucket of stress and part of me believes I can never let it go. I choose to remember it's not me, it's my brain. So we do we do a number of these, these linguistic patterns to break it up. And then very often I'll just do logosynthesis and we'll clear the energy of the bucket and it goes away.
0: Wow. So
1: I'm exploring a synthesis of all of these, which seems to be so far the most efficient, rapid, thorough, and fun ways of clearing things. So I'll, I'll probably talk about it and teach that at some point. I look
0: forward to it. That's what I'm experimenting with. Wow. So I know we're we're getting close to our our, our time here. So I. I Deeply appreciate you taking the time. It's always um, just a joy to be with you and hang out with you, but it's also just a joy to hear your, your, your incredible wisdom and knowledge both at the same time. Um, well, Doug,
1: Doug, Doug O'Brien, I'm gonna, I, I've got to tell you the truth, buddy. Every time I'm in your aura, I feel enhanced.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> As you were saying, my friend, you were, you were very elegantly wrapping things up and I just jumped in with that.
0: Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Harry. That's you,
1: you, you are an auric enhancer, my man.
0: <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> 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 oh, gosh. Um, so I know that you only work with some people every now and again, but um, if somebody wanted to find out more about what you have to offer the world, where did they find Harry Pickens?
1: Best thing, you know, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm like a best kept secret because I'm, 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 I have a waiting list for clients, so I'm, I'm not marketing myself at all. Um, but if anybody's interested in anything that we talked about and wants to communicate with me, they can email me at h pickens at bellsouth.net. H h p i c k e n s at bellsouth.net.
0: Bellsouth.net. Mm-hmm. So they can just email you directly.
1: Email me directly and they tell me their question or their, whatever their concern is. I'll be happy to communicate with them. it's wow, yep. beautiful. Do you have a website? Doug, I'm embarrassed to say I don't have a personal website. No. Nope. In fact, I have, I have never had a personal website and I have never marketed my coaching work at all for 12 wow. years. Wow. Uh, and I, 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 the other thing is I, I, I don't do one-off one sessions. What I do is I work with people. I'll do an interview with them and I put together a customized curriculum for them. I usually work with people from anywhere from four months to a year and a half. And so I, I, I will talk to them. They'll fill out a form. We'll do a a couple, we'll spend a couple of hours really diving deep. And then I basically propose a curriculum and we work that curriculum. Um, And that's how I work with folks. Okay. So it's, it's incredibly powerful because also the people who come to me, are always what I call in the chrysalis stage they're 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 between the caterpillar and the butterfly they're in some significant transition or transformation either personal or career-wise or physical or relational and they really need a midwife to help them navigate the transition I also get a lot of referrals from therapists um I get people who have major kinds of traumatic experiences that the therapists are not equipped to really work with with the tools that they have um because of the tools that I have and they will help them. So
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you for being here. Um, I'm sure people will want to hear more. So um, Harry Pickens, blessings. Thank you. Blessings
1: to you, my friend. Take good care.
0: This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks.